So they went up, that's uh, the brothers, went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, when he has, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I'll go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said to Jacob, and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughter and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, and the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan, and the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron, and the sons of Zebulun, Sarad, Elon, and Jachlil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she brought to Jacob in Padan Aram, together with his daughter Diana, altogether his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphian, Haggai, Shuni, Ezborn, Eri, Arodi, and Ereli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Beria, with Sarah their sister, and the sons of Beria, Herber, Melchior. Uh, these are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Aseneth, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becca, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons to, in all. Uh, the sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shilem. These are the sons of Bilhar, whom Laban gave to Rachel's daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. So all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, uh, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all, and the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Let's pray as we start. Father, thank you uh, that you are not a silent God, uh, but in your grace you speak to us. Thank you that uh, through your word, your spirit shapes us and changes us. So we ask you to do that now. Uh, would we leave looking more like the people you want us to be? Amen. Amen. Well, we live in a world 
bombarded by broken promises. Uh, the happiest place on earth was Disneyland's most popular slogan. Really, Disneyland? Doesn't that seem a little far-fetched? Uh, the day after we vote to leave, we hold all the cards and choose the path we want, said Michael Gove before the Brexit referendum. Really, Michael, are you still willing to stand by that? I take you to be my husband or wife until death do we part. And yet the average marriage in this country is a little, little over 12 years. Every divorce, every affair, well, it's a promise broken. And it wouldn't take much soul searching to know that broken promises lie much closer to home. If our promises were fact-checked, while well, we'd curl up in shame, if our bank transactions were read or our internet history reviewed or actions scrutinised. And in this world, if you're a Christian, God has made you huge promises. And the question is this, in a world of broken promises, where adverts pledge hollow rewards, where politicians manipulate and twist their own words, uh, in a world in which we know ourselves to be promise breakers, what is God like? Can his promises be trusted? Well, let's turn uh, to our passage. Flick back a page to uh, chapter 45. Uh, last week we saw that Joseph uh, revealed himself to his brothers. Um, and then in chapter 45, uh, start looking at verse 9, uh, he commands uh, his brothers to bring back Jacob to Egypt. That's 9 to 15. And, and then he goes and, and gets Pharaoh's favour, verses 16 to 20. And then he showers his brothers with blessings, uh, verses 21 to 24. That's to uh, reassure them of his love for them. And then in verse 25, our focus shifts uh, from Joseph to Jacob. And the question is this, what, what is Jacob's life pre-Genesis 46? Well, at the start of the Joseph narrative, when Joseph's blood-torn coat is presented to Jacob, he says in chapter uh, 37, I'll go down to Sheol. Uh, that is the grave, to my son, mourning. And really, since then, not much has changed. Our, our limited interactions with Jacob have dripped with misery and echoed with depression. Uh, the very last thing we heard Jacob say was this, uh, speaking about the death of his uh, favourite son, the potential death of his favourite son, chapter 43, As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And only a man in the depth of depression could possibly make so stark a statement about the death of his son. He simply sounds like he stopped caring, as if life simply couldn't get any worse. And he's weighed down with sorrow at his great losses. And in the depth of his darkness, one of the echoing questions in his mind must have been, where are God's promises now? You see, God had previously made them big and bountiful promises, full of hope and future, and we'll look at those. But recently, God has been completely silent, ever since Joseph went missing, in fact. God's silence would only have confounded and tortured Jacob. Where are God's promises now? It may even be that he thought Joseph, the son of his favourite wife, to be the vehicle through which God would deliver his promises. But now he believed Joseph was dead. Where are God's promises now? Well, chapter 46 shows us that Jacob 
has nothing to fear. And that despite living in a broken world, full of broken promises, God is trustworthy. God is faithful to his promises. I think that Genesis 46 shows us that God is faithful to his promises in three main ways. First, it shows us that God's promises are consistent. God doesn't change his mind uh, once he's spoken. So in chapter 46, verses 2 to 4, uh, God breaks the silence of Jacob. And that actually speaks for the first time in the whole of the Joseph narrative. And for Jacob, well, it must have been like a spotlight being switched on because God's promises have remained exactly the same. Uh, way back in Genesis 12, God made some huge promises to Abraham and they consisted of three major elements. Uh, the promise of a people uh, living in a place uh, with God's presence. For many of you, that will be familiar. So in Genesis 12, he says to Abraham, go to the land I will show you. That's the place. I'll make you into a great nation. Uh, that's the people. I'll bless those who bless you. And him who dishonours you, I'll curse. That's his presence with Abraham. And, and those three elements, people, place, presence, are the backbone, the main artery of his promises to his chosen people. He repeats that three-pronged promise three times, sorry, five times to Abraham. Uh, the promises get expanded upon, they get nuanced. They never modify, they're never changed. When Abraham dies, his three-pronged promise gets passed on to Isaac, and Isaac dies, and Jacob also receives them. In fact, before now, before this passage, he's received them twice. Everything for Jacob seemed to have been going so well. But then Joseph disappeared, presumed dead. God became silent, and the world went dark for Jacob. Where are God's promises now? So, it must have been to Jacob's great relief, like the sun rising after a long, cold, dark night, that God breaks his silence and speaks. And he reissues the same three-pronged promise. So look down, verse 3. I will make you into a great nation. That's the people. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. That's his presence with them. And I will bring you up again, uh, back to the promised land where Jacob already is. Uh, that's, his, that's the promise of his place. Uh, I'm sure you've all had the experience of uh, reading a billboard advert. Uh, it's making a promise that seems too good to be true. Uh, sign up and we'll give you money, it claims. But when you cast your eye down to the tiny little print at the bottom, you soon realise that it's just that. Too good to be true. The initial promise becomes so twisted and modified that it's barely recognisable. Well, God's promises are not like that. Instead, they're more like a diamond. Why, why are diamonds so valuable? Well, not simply because they're gorgeous, which they are, um, but because they're unchanging. Uh, they don't corrode or rust or, or tarnish. So unlike the billboard promise, God does not modify or twist his words. He has given his people diamond-like promises. God's promises are consistent. Well, second, we need to see God is in the business of completing his promises. In Genesis 46, we see God proving his faithfulness through evidence that he is completing his promises. Look over the page, page 40. Uh, look down at verse 27. 
we read uh, at the bottom of the verse, all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt uh, were 70. And interestingly, the number 70 only pops up occasionally in the Bible. And when it does, it's usually at very significant points. So the number of nations that grow from Noah in Genesis 10, when counted, are 70. When Moses goes up Mount Sinai, he goes with 70 elders. Uh, When Jesus sends out his disciples to the lost sheep of Israel, he sends out 70. Uh, And so Genesis 46 is saying, look, what's going on in this genealogy is, well, it's hugely significant. What's so important? Well, God's promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the words of verse 3 that he will make them into a great nation. And in the listing of Jacob's numerous and frankly unpronounceable descendants, uh, we see the first flowering, uh, the springtime buds of that promise. Uh, remember where this group came from. Uh, a barren old man, Abraham. Sorry, an old man, Abraham, and barren wife, Sarah. Uh, the odds of them having a family at all would have been astronomical. But God is faithful to his promises. Nothing is too hard for him. And he has grown a childless old couple into a household of 70. And just the tree that buds and produces flowers will one day be laden with fruit. This mismatched group of 70 will be grown into a great nation of hundreds upon thousands. You see, God is in the business of completing his promises. As a matter of fact, this move that Jacob and his family undertakes down to Egypt, uh, you see that in verses 5 to 7, the great move is itself a fulfillment of a promise that God made Abraham. So in Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, May for certain the offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and will be afflicted for 400 years. A sojourner is a a traveller or a wanderer, um, someone who has not yet reached their final destination. And Jacob and his family will indeed be travellers in a land that is not theirs. And that land is Egypt. God is in the business of completing his promises. And perhaps as Jacob moves down to Egypt with his, uh, verse 7, his sons, sons, his sons and his sons, sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, uh, he would have looked around him and thought, huh, even though I couldn't see it, God was being faithful to his promises all along. Okay, third, and I think this is key, God is controlling circumstances, God is controlling circumstances to complete his promises. So at the start of chapter 46, uh, Jacob is, quite frankly, well, worried. And we know that because when God speaks, he speaks to reassure him. So when he speaks, verses 3, verse 3, he says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid. Well, implication, (laughs) Jacob was afraid. Why? Well, in verse 1, he's just reached a place called Beersheba. And if we put our geography hats on, uh, we know that Beersheba is the southernmost point of the promised land, Canaan. Uh, go beyond that and you're entering Egypt. Uh, so you see, Jacob was afraid of moving out of the promised land. Jacob knew that moving to Egypt symbolised stepping away from God's promises. Uh, it actually was a sign of someone lacking faith. And he knew that because Abraham previously did exactly what Jacob and his family are planning to do. So in Genesis 12, we see Abraham move to Egypt uh, because 
of a severe famine. And if you read that story, it was, well, it was clearly a major biggie for Abraham. And so for Jacob, potentially doing something um, that would hinder, hinder the fulfillment of God's promises filled him with fear. Enough fear to stop him rushing down to see his long-lost son. And it gives us a glimpse, just a glimmer, that Jacob is once more tightening his grip on God's promises. It explains why he stops to offer sacrifices, again in verse 1. He's essentially saying, look, I desperately want to see my son, of course I do, but actually what I have going on with you, God, is more important. What you've promised me is more important. And so when God speaks, he speaks to reassure Jacob. And he reassures Jacob by telling him that this move to Egypt is a deliberately implemented circumstance that God has designed. Look down at verse 3. So he says, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Egypt has been chosen by God to be the womb for his people. And if we flick into Exodus, we would know that Egypt does become heavily pregnant with Israelites and eventually does give birth to a great host. Egypt is where God turns the 70 into the hundreds of thousands. So living in Egypt is one of the circumstances God has designed in order to complete his promises. Very quickly, why Egypt? Well, I think God moves in there to preserve them physically and spiritually. So the move preserves them physically. Remember, the famine is so severe that Jesus' brothers have had to uh, come down to Egypt twice already. We're only a couple of years into the famine to buy grain. Uh, so by bringing them into Egypt, he's removing the imminent threat of death and placing them somewhere they can grow and flourish. But more importantly, I think the move preserves them spiritually. So Jacob and his family were already living in the promised land in Canaan. Okay? Uh, but the promised land is filled with idolatrous Canaanites. In fact, in verse 10, we have clear evidence that the Israelites were already intermarrying uh, with the Canaanites. And so spiritually speaking, um, spiritually speaking, that puts Jacob and his family in jeopardy. And so God relocates them until the time is right. So not only is God completing his promises, but he's completing them exactly the way he wants to. And by a little deduction, if moving to Egypt is God's design, and all the circumstances leading up to it, well, they're also God's design. And that's including allowing Jacob to believe his son was dead and allowing Joseph to be sold into slavery. You see, it's not like God is presented with a set of circumstances and somehow works out how to use them to complete his promises. No. Circumstances are given by him in order to complete in order to complete his promises. So all of Jacob's and Joseph's previous circumstances were designed by God to fulfill his promises. And the question is, how should someone respond to a faithful, promise-keeping God? Answer. By consciously choosing to have their lives shaped by his promises. And that's what we see Joseph do. We're going to read uh, the next chunk, verses 28 to 34. So verse 28. 
He has sent Judah ahead of them, ahead of him. So Jacob has sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him, fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I've seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I'll go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds. They have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, The servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, before we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Well, we have this frankly heartwarming scene where Jacob gets in his chariot, his symbol of wealth and status in Egypt, and finally is reunited with his beloved dad. Verse 29, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Uh, we're not going to dwell there though, because in verses 28 to 34, we need to see Joseph as planning something very deliberate, and we need to know why. Uh, first, in verse 28, uh, Jacob's family goes straight to this land of Goshen. Now, this move actually is in strict obedience to Joseph. So, flip back to chapter 45, verse 10, uh, speaking to his brothers, he says, You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. So, Goshen is Joseph's very deliberately chosen location. And then in verses 31 to 34, Joseph describes exactly what he's going to say to Pharaoh. And the core message is this, my family are shepherds. He'll make it crystal clear in verse 32, they're shepherds and they keep livestock. And that means, oh Pharaoh, that's exactly what they're going to be doing here in Egypt. Just look at all the herds, look at all the flocks they've brought. And to push the point home, he'll tell his family to do exactly the same thing in verse 33. So verse 33, when Pharaoh calls you and says, uh, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock. Shepherds. Uh, why is Joseph so painfully keen uh, to get that message across? Well, the bizarre answer seems to be, verse 34, to make them seem like an abomination. Say that they may dwell on the land of Goshen. You know, Joseph, that, that doesn't seem like the best idea. Uh, an abomination is something, well, something repulsive. It's a bit like saying, oh, fairy, my family are here and they smell a bit like gone-off cheese. It's actually a bit disgusting. Well, what effect is Joseph hoping to have? Separation. You see, Joseph is keen that his family, the Israelites, are as separate as possible from the Egyptians. Uh, just think, if the Egyptians feed the Israelites, well, it's frankly just a bit grim, um, as a, an abomination, uh, there'll be virtually no chance of, chance of intermarrying or, or cultural merging between the two. Joseph wants to keep Israel as distinguished as possible from Egypt. He wants to do all he can to prevent uh, Israelites from losing their identity. Why? Because his eyes are fixed on the promises of God. You see, he knows that Egypt is not his permanent home. He knows that they're travellers, uh, sojourners there. Uh, he knows that God has actually promised them 
a land of their own. And so he kills off any chances of being absorbed into the Egyptian nation. He does that by making them seem foul, like an abomination in their eyes. This also helps us understand why he chose Goshen. Goshen is in northeast Egypt, almost as close to Canaan, the promised land, as possible. So once the famine was over in the lush land of Goshen, Israel will be able to go into the great nation that God had promised in verse 3. Jacob's eyes are fixed on the promises of God. And so he shapes his family's life in such a way so that when the time came, they'd be ready and able to leave. In sharp contrast, actually, the Israelites, 430 years later, wandering in the desert, well, they are the opposite to Joseph. Uh, they didn't believe that God would be faithful and give them the land of Canaan. Just think, they're the literal embodiment that God is faithful to his promises. They were the great nation that Egypt had given birth to. In fact, more than that, God had promised them his presence, and now he was literally dwelling with them in a tent. Of all the people who had reason to shape their lives by God's promises, it was them. But they didn't. On the edge of the promised land, uh, they chose a doubt that God would give them the land of Canaan. They chose to disbelieve him and turn away in fear. So how different is Joseph? That he was ready to appear repulsive in the eyes of the Egyptians because of God's promises. His eyes were fixed on what lay ahead of him. Are yours, like Jacob, like the Israelites, God has given us, if you're a Christian, huge and bountiful promises about our future. But like Jacob, we so often choose to doubt his faithfulness. God has promised us a new creation, a place where there's no more crying or mourning or heartache. And yet every day we're confronted by pain and suffering. It's written into every headline that's even etched into the details of our own lives. Does God really care? And the doubts begin to creep in. God has promised to be with us constantly, to never leave our side. And in the future, to be actually so intimate with us that he'll be the one wiping away our tears. But sometimes in this world, he just feels so distant, so uncaring. Is he really near? And the doubts begin to creep in. God has promised that one day Christ will return and take us to be with him in glory and there we'll live under his perfect and loving rule. But 2,000 years have passed and Christ is still not here. Is he really coming back? And the doubts begin to creep in. And brothers and sisters, we can kill those doubts and we can squash them beneath the faithfulness of our God. And then we can let his promises shape our decisions, you know, what job we have, or where we live, or how we spend our money, or how we raise our family. Like Joseph, we can shape our lives knowing that this place is not our home. Our God is faithful to his promises. He is consistent. His promises are like diamonds. He will complete them, and he'll complete them exactly the way he wants to. I don't know what life looks like for you. Life may feel like an utter joy. Or maybe everywhere you look, you see darkness and depression. 
or maybe you're somewhere in between. Well, know this, the life you currently have is given to you exactly as it is, with all its joys and with all its genuine sorrows, not in spite of, but because God is faithful to his promises. And I hope and pray that when we reach our final destination, we will be able to say, huh, even though I couldn't see it all the time, God is being faithful to his promises all along. Uh, but you may say to me, oh, it's all very well for Jacob. He had real tangible evidence that God is faithful. He had a family of 70. God spoke to him. Well, what about us? Well, I want to draw uh, out one final, last crucial element from this chapter. I want you to see that God's promises come through a resurrected ruler. God's promises come through a resurrected ruler. Say, so, looking back at chapter 45, back at verse 25, to Jacob, the old man who lost his son to wild animals uh, decades ago, the words of verse 25, sorry, verse 26, must have seemed like Joseph returning from the dead. Joseph is still alive. He had seen the evidence of Joseph's death, a blood-torn coat. And so when his sons reported that Joseph is both alive and a ruler, it's little wonder that his heart grew numb and that it grew cold in disbelief, verse 26. But eventually he does believe, his spirit revives, verse 27. And he believes because he sees the evidence. Now the wagons, Joseph sends, convince Jacob that the story is true. There's no way his sons, having left Egypt with a few donkeys, could return to his father, to their father, uh, with these wagons. They convinced him the story was true. And it actually causes Jacob from turning, it causes Jacob to turn from the um, fear of death to the contentment of death. Uh, verse 28, Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I'll go and see him before I die. And actually chapter 46, verse 30 as well. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die. Do you hear the contentment? Since I've seen your face and know that you are still alive. And I wonder, who does Jacob's response remind you of? Well, surely the apostles who responded to the news of the resurrected Jesus of a mixture of disbelief and doubt. But as the evidence mounted, not least in seeing the resurrected Jesus for themselves, the doubt turned to faith. And their unbelief to belief, they turned from quaking, spineless men hiding behind doors to men content to die torturous deaths for Christ. Because you see, Joseph's resurrection brought Jacob's family out of the shadow of physical death, giving them excessive physical treasure, and they were moved from the brink of starvation into the lap of luxury. And in a similar way, Christ's resurrection brings his people out of real spiritual death and into excessive spiritual treasure. In fact, all the treasure that God has promised Jesus' death and resurrection is the way God will give us all he has promised, uh, a new creation with a perfect ruler living in his presence. And his resurrection has already happened. And so the story foreshadows why we can have such confidence in the faithfulness of God. He has already proved himself faithful by raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus being alive is a guarantee that God's promises won't fail. 
And so we can be sure that what has been promised us, even if we can't see the fruit of it yet, he will give us. So I want you to find your contentment in the news that Christ is alive, just as Jacob found his in the news that Joseph is alive. Know that because he is alive, you can shape your lives on God's promises. Life will throw curveball after curveball at us. We will be tempted to doubt God. But we have every reason not to. We have every reason to be content, trusting God to do exactly what he said he will do. The question is, will you live like it? Will you live like it? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a faithful God. Thank you that in Scripture, over and over again, we see your faithfulness, and we see it so clearly here in Genesis 46. Please, we will not leave, um, not leave unchanged. Uh, would we shape our lives on your promises, and would we shape them in the light of Christ's resurrection? Would we learn from Joseph, who is ready to appear repulsive in the eyes of the Egyptians, because his eyes were fixed on where he was going? In your son's name, amen.